Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by Jim Grandolfo, a capital markets partner and head of Milbank's office in Hong Kong. There's a lot of confidence that the level of liquidity that's in the markets these days is really going to continue to drive things, at least for the next several years. Let's get to it. Jim, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Yeah, really happy to be here, Alan. Thanks. So, capital markets in Asia are at kind of an interesting inflection point, it seems to me, right now, not just because of the pandemic, but just because of the rapid growth that we've seen. And I think the maturity, both among host nations and the investors that are looking to invest. Um, What do you think have been the biggest changes in the last decade? Well, I think for sure, the change in the way that transactions are are executed. You know, when I first came to Asia, which was a long time ago, over 20 years ago, the investment banks ran the entire deal. They chose their counsel. They chose the issuer's counsel. They kind of charged the fees that they wanted, although I think fees have always been negotiated. And, you know, a lot of issuers, even very large conglomerates in, say, the Philippines or in Indonesia, were really not schooled at, at doing international capital markets transactions. And what has happened in the last decade is there has been so much volume and a lot of companies have come to rely on raising money overseas that these issuers have become very schooled in, in, in the process. And nowadays they pretty much control the process and they will choose their investment banks and they will bring the lawyers in who they want to work with. They will actually tell the investment banks who the investment bank's lawyers will be because their company is paying. That is really one of the one of the largest changes. You know, it really affects the entire transaction. So if you're the CFO of an Asian company, an issuer, and you're looking at this range of first you could do domestic capital raising, but there may not be enough depth. Perhaps you there's some value to inviting in international investors. You could do a U.S. dollar offering. You could do it in Europe. You could look to Chinese or uh, investors. You could look to sovereign investors, maybe out of Singapore. What's the first kind of decision gate through which you might make some of those decisions? That's a good question. You're obviously looking at your capital needs and where, what the company will be, you know, using that capital for. I mean, if it's for if it's for growth or if it's for refinancing, could be could be different things. Refinancing is usually you end up going back to the source. So if you're looking to refinance Hong Kong dollar debt, you're going to do a Hong Kong dollar offering. If you're looking to refinance U.S. dollar debt, likely you're going to be doing a U.S. dollar offering to do that. But you know, there's lots of things that come into play. The accessibility of investors, and I think that's obviously why we still see the majority of, of cross-border deals being you know, dollar bonds. But there are certain reasons that, that CFOs will decide that this is time to do a, you know, just do a euro deal or to do a yen deal. And the reasons for doing those would be, would be more, more bespoke. Maybe a specific need for that currency with respect to a capital expenditure project, maybe because you think you can get the transaction done you know, very, very cheaply. And there are a number of things that go, I think, I think that go into a CFO's decision-making process. Some of it will be what's, you know, what's being pitched to them and, and how successful the pitches are because the investment bankers are pitching new things all the time. Yeah. Let's look at a particular deal, kind of get more, more specific. I know you just did a large uh, IPO in the Philippines for Moan Nissen, which you know, is in the food and beverage business. A lot of people who go into a grocery store, not just in the Philippines, but you know, throughout Southeast Asia, would recognize a lot of their products on the shelves when they want to buy some snacks. Yeah, that their noodles are the uh, are the best noodles in Asia. I'm told. So, when they do an IPO, what's driving that kind of a transaction in the current market? 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple of things. They're a relatively large company. They had done a major acquisition several years ago of a business in the UK called Corn, which is a meat alternative business. And they decided to do that acquisition and then they wanted that company to become really integrated into the business before they decided to do the, the IPO. I think that they got to the size and scale where being public made sense. They had done, they also had the the support or perhaps the push of their pre-IPO investors. So they they did do a number of fundraisings in the five years prior to the IPO with institutional investors who obviously are looking to cash in on their investment. There was an, an exit by certain of their investors. So so that that's part of the drive. I think it was a good opportunity for capital raisings as, as well. And what we've seen in the Philippines in the last year or so with you know quite a surge in in new equity transactions which is not uncommon for the in terms of the, the Philippines the rest of the region's been very busy in the equity space as well but we're really starting to see a large Philippine retail component in these deals which we hadn't really seen before as well as local institutional investors and you know I think that the fact that the company felt that they could rely on their on their branding and the fact that they were well known throughout the country made it easier for them to be confident that they could get a successful deal done and it and it ended up being very successful yeah you know, actually that makes me think of, of another thing which has actually changed quite a bit I know I when I was doing uh, capital markets deals and project financings in Asia, you know, 20 to 30 years ago, a lot of the big issuers or, or borrowers were either large conglomerates, right, across multiple sectors, often controlled by a powerful family uh, originally, uh, or they were strong, you know, national airlines or natural resources companies, uh, certainly were big companies in energy. But what was missing was that consumer piece and that consumer sector and the rise of the middle class across Asia in the last couple of decades really is striking to the point where a lot of the GDP growth is really self-sustaining from a middle-class consumer-driven sector. Yeah, one thing that points that out is, this is another Philippine example, but the Philippines about close to 20 years ago now, when the Philippines decided that they were going to allow gaming resorts to uh, to be established and they gave out four different licenses. I think, you know, with the, with the success of Macau bringing in you know, Chinese guests, Chinese gamblers from the mainland and the success that Macau has had. I think the Philippines thought that they, that's where the same drive of customers would come from. But what has turned out is the the mass market player, the Filipino playing in, in you know, in, in the casinos now is really a big driver of the business, far, far larger than I think they originally thought. And that is because of the really growing middle class. It's one of the reasons the Philippines economy has, has been so strong for so many years. Yeah. And we've seen that around the region, Thailand, obviously with different challenges, but Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, even it's been a, a marked change. One of the other changes is sources of capital. So if we go back it used to see a lot of foreign direct investment directly from corporate investors, especially out of Japan, and as well, of course, you know, Europe and the United States. We saw a lot of banks that were providing the debt. Today, we see private equity players, sovereign wealth funds playing a big role, especially on the equity side. And, and on the debt side, institutional investors, as in the rest of the world, uh, are playing a large role in fueling some of the growth in, in Asian companies. And in all of this, Hong Kong has remained a financial center that really, um, par excellence, has dominated the region in a lot of ways. And you're based in Hong Kong. 
How do you explain the continued relevance of Hong Kong as a financial center and the, the ability to navigate these changes in sources of capital? Yeah, well, I think that you really have had this very large shift into hedge funds, investment funds, some are, some are sovereign wealth, but they're all looking for places to put the money that they've raised to work. And Hong Kong continues to be the landing spot for a lot of these funds. There has been some competition from Singapore, I think, because the investors undoubtedly will have a part of their business will be looking at Chinese you know, investments into China. People see Hong Kong as being more central to that. Being based in Singapore, it makes it a lot tougher to access China. So I think that has really driven the the relevance of of the Hong Kong market. Plus, plus obviously the ability to you know the Hong, the Hong Kong IPO market itself and the fact that Chinese companies. Are continuing to use Hong Kong as a way to raise, you know, dollars, and I think that's going to continue. But when you look at the role of China in the region economically, and I think even more broadly at, at what I'll call intra-Asian capital flows, so you've always had you know flows from North Asia into South Asia or Southeast Asia, uh, but the role of China is different, and the volume of investment across the region that's not coming in from Europe or North America or, or elsewhere in the world is really quite striking. And I would include in that South Asia because the Indian economy has become quite large and plays a role certainly that's different than China. It's, I think it's mainly a, a net recipient, of course, of, of investment. If you look 10 years ahead and you kind of forecast where the money's coming from and where it's going uh, within the region, how will that be, do you think, different than it might be today? I just see the acceleration of, I mean, funds seem to continue to be growing every day. There's, there are new ones. The, the amount of capital that's in the system at the moment is obviously driving a huge amount of economic growth around the world, not just in the United States. In some ways, I see this as a, I see an acceleration towards the, you know, a way that we're going now at the moment, which is significant funds with lots of capital to invest. And as the Asian economies continue to become more mature and more diverse, they will then be you know, looking for additional products to come online. We are in Asia still quite behind in terms of technology of certain types of transactions, especially say in the leverage finance space, You know, the bank bond transactions that we often see in New York and in London just are not as prevalent in Asia. Why is that? What's, what, say more about the technological gap. Yeah, I think that goes back to what we started, what we talked about in the beginning. The CFOs of of the typical Asian company, they're very skilled at doing the senior unsecured dollar bond. But when someone comes and proposes, you know, a, a bank loan, you know, acquisition that will be funded by a loan that then needs to be taken out by a bond, they just seem, I think, see that and interacting covenants that will, uh, they need to understand. Um, and interact with on a on a regular basis to ensure they're in compliance. That I think ends up being a little bit scary, and in some ways, people see, they they will see it as unnecessary. So they don't necessarily know the benefits. They hear that it's going to take longer, that it might cost more on a from a legal perspective, or the invest the investment bank is going to charge more than for you know a senior bond. So if you're talking ten years from now, the hope is that there will be greater sophistication in terms of you know CFO's understanding of the products that are available to them for financings. Yeah, I could, I suspect there's some economic aspects to that. For example, a lack of confidence in the ability to refinance shorter-term debt, especially in a time when interest rates may be rising over the next five years compared to the last five years. One could understand why CFO might be a little reticent to take on short-term bank debt as a bridge to bond debt when the capital markets windows 
either may not be open or may be more expensive five years from now, and stacking them on top of each other, having, you know, senior sub, mez, that's going to require probably more robust enforcement of intercreditor provisions and subordination provisions than most of the local legal systems currently provide. Yeah, well, you, you have you have those issues as well, which will you know, which I think make it difficult. There is a lack of maturity in the legal systems in a lot of these markets, and in some ways, you know, that that drives the challenges that we have as as lawyers. The companies, the CFOs, are not as they're not as concerned with with making mistakes with respect to covenants or with respect to you know provisions or let's say their disclosure and they don't put as much value on it as you would see in New York or in in London and a lot of that is because there aren't class actions <laughs> and there are not uh, there's not a fear that you know you could lose the company over you know a mistake in your disclosure yeah it may not it may not necessarily help your your reputation with bondholders but you know people people forget things rather rather quickly uh, around here and um, we see it all the time where you know companies who were in bankruptcy or you know have had financial troubles with respect to bondholders restructuring and being back in the market very very quickly yeah one of the other things people have sort memories on, I think, are currency risks. I, I remember sitting in Indonesia doing a power deal in 1997 when it was about 2,500 rupiah to the dollar. And we were very excited about closing our financing by January. And of course, by that point, because of the Asian financial crisis, it was about 14,000 rupiah to the dollar. We were going from closing to instead doing a force majeure claim <laughs> under all the contracts and moving all the expats who just moved into Jakarta with their families six months before out of the country before the government fell. And I remember a, a smart investment banker said to me in, early in the negotiations, he said, when people stop worrying about currency risks, you kind of should look for the exits. Yeah. And I think that central bankers have become much more aware of, you know, they learned a lot from from that crisis and try to protect that themselves with with significant reserves in their treasuries. And so hopefully we're not going to see see a crisis like that again. But you know, it is, it obviously is a concern. I mean, you know, companies who are earning mostly in pesos or in Hong Kong dollars, uh, Hong Kong dollar is not such a good, good example because it's fixed, but say to Indian rupees, they will want to make sure that they have, you know, hedge their FX risk. And on a national level, not just on an enterprise level, I want to tie two things together. One was this idea of monetary controls and banking regulation, banking stability to really provide that that predictable foundation that allows investors the confidence to fuel this, this growth. And that disintermediation you talked about before, where if a lot of the, the money, whether it's debt or equity, is coming from hedge funds or sovereign funds or uh, uh, private funds of some kind, and not through the formal banking system, although there may be, of course, inter, you know, intermediaries like law firms and accounting firms and investment banks that are still playing a big role, does that make it harder for the monetary authorities to maintain the stability that they used to do through bank regulations and kind of balance of payments, capital controls? Well, I think it does. And there have been concerns raised by governments about the, you know, some people call it shadow banking system. And that, that does make running your monetary policy a little bit more difficult. And I think some governments have put in place rules and regulations that require certain disclosure of certain of transactions of certain size. So they're aware of, of large transactions that are happening. But yeah, I think the answer is, is definitely yes. 
And do you see a lot of coordination, or is there still, there used to be, I know, a bit of a gap between regulatory authorities that are looking at banking, looking at securities, looking at maybe specific sectors of the economy, like uh, energy or mining that are relevant to a lot of the issuers that you're dealing with. Are, are the government policies aligned internally, or is there still a lot of fragmentation? No, I think there's still a lot of fragmentation, both within governments and, of, co- and of course, across borders. Sometimes the regulations are, are very, very different. But a lot of the, these Southeast Asian governments are, you know, extremely large and bureaucratic and getting the securities regulator to talk to the monetary authority, it doesn't happen. We're actually involved in a transaction at the moment where, and I I won't go into too specific of of a discussion, but the company is required to do an IPO under the rules of the franchise that was originally granted to the company and it's the power in a power business yet and, and they're coming up on the deadline of that having to be done unfortunately the rules of the stock exchange will not allow us to get the transaction done in the time that's required under the rules of requiring them to go public from the from the regulatory authorities so you know we're we're trying to trying to work that out but the two different governmental sectors do not want to speak to each other yeah of course in fairness that's not a uniquely uh, south southeast asian problem we were dealing in the united states with a port company uh, you know container terminals where for national security, CFIUS clearance reasons, there was a desire for things to be divested in a time that was certainly quicker than what I think local port authorities and uh, other involved regulators and parties could handle. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's it's specific to governments here. Yeah. I'm actually also thinking of an experience I had in India back in the uh, early 90s, where the Ministry of Power was trying to encourage private sector participation in the power industry both domestic and international. And they welcomed in a lot of foreign investors, including illustrious names like Enron, uh, to, build, to build power plants. And the plan was to welcome $5 billion a year in foreign commercial borrowings just for the power sector. And our little team wandered over to the Ministry of Finance and mentioned this to them kind of just in passing. And they sort of looked at us funny. They said, well, that's, that's odd. Are you sure the Ministry of Power gave you the right numbers? We said, yes. They said, well, the total limit on external commercial borrowings for India under our current plan is $5 billion across all sectors. That means buying Boeing 747s for the airlines and, you know, for Alliance to buy refinery equipment. And, you know, it wasn't just for the couple of power plants. So there was certainly a lack of coordination that obviously changed over time. Yeah. And and India has loosened their rules around capital controls to encourage more investment. So that number is probably much higher now. It's multiples higher. And also now they allow greater leverage, which is the other thing they were limiting, how much equity versus debt debt could come in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that has come with, I think, a maturing of the government and a growing economy. One of the themes that we've also seen, I think, addressed differently is environmental. I don't just mean ESG broadly, but really looking at environmental and sustainability, climate-related issues. I know you've worked on some green bonds in Asia, uh, as Milbank has in other parts of the world. In the debt side, that used to come in through banks uh, with the equator principles, having contractual requirements for environmental compliance that were often stricter than the way local laws were enforced, whether it's for air emissions or water or you know, whether you, you know, how, you, how you impacted local communities. Export credit agencies, multilateral agencies, you know, certainly played a big role coming out of uh, Japan and Korea and, and, and Europe. Today, when you have a lot of the investment coming from institutional investors, 
And a lot of the investors in funds, you know, the LPs do now talk a lot about environmental uh, issues and climate. How does that manifested in the terms of the transactions? Well, that that goes to kind of the reasons why you often see the, you know a green bond or a sustainability bond. It goes back to the the original investors, whether it's the investors in a hedge fund, whether it's the limited partners in an investment fund. They are demanding that the the investments that they make will be green or will apply a specific metric that can help the investor confirm that the funds that they're investing are not going to be used in a way that is damaging to the climate. And so that you know so those demands make their way down to the issuers who understand that if they can do a green bond, they can do a sustainability bond, there will be more interest, it'll be more marketable and it will probably reduce their funding costs. And that's really what we've seen. And, and we've seen the green bonds be done by companies in every market. You know, I think it's something that is here to stay. So if you look at this current picture that you've described, so we've got rising GDP per capita across the region that's fueling economic growth. We're seeing it in sectors where there's a wider distribution of wealth, right, within countries. So consumers become more important. Natural resources, relatively speaking, maybe less so. Manufacturing is becoming more important. Technology is more important. And access to capital with all that money, liquidity sloshing around the system, there's plenty of money available for investment. And interest rates look to be stable and probably when they do rise, not rising too quickly to derail that. So setting aside exogenous shocks like pandemics for a moment, assume we, we come out of that as uneven as that may be in the region. Do you see any risk factors that people should be thinking of that we could control or address that, that are maybe hidden like mines in a minefield that could derail this? Or is it smooth sailing? And specifically the capital markets fueled investment, which is powering that growth. I think that the investment banks need to be smart about what they're selling and who they're selling Two, we've seen some transactions in the Chinese high yield space, which in this interest rate environment is still returning 14, 15%, and investors getting on board with that. You could see overheating from that perspective where prices just end up getting too high and investors decide that they're going to take profits. But there's not a lot. There's a lot of confidence that the level of liquidity that's in the markets these days is really going to continue to drive things, at least for the next several years. I've heard a number of people use the use the term roaring 20s. We're back, you know, we're back in the roaring 20s because of all of the physical stimulus that came about much because of the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard that elsewhere in the world, people talk about it. You know, we're, we're entering the roaring 20s again. And some people mean that to be good because that was a time of incredible growth. And other people say, well, wait a second, how did that end up in the 30s? <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Well, I mean, I think if economics continues to play out the way it has for thousands of years, there will be a downturn at some point. When that is, it's hard to tell. That day will come eventually. If you and I knew when that was exactly, we might have a different a different line of work. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I might not be on doing this podcast right now. That's for sure. Yeah. I read a piece a number of years ago that mentioned that the uh, a teenager in an upper middle class professional home, maybe a government official, senior government official home, she might have more in common because of the media she's consuming and the technology she has access to and the the mall that she's shopping in. She might have more in common with the teenager in Jakarta or Shanghai or Munich or Sao Paulo or LA than she does with people just down the street, maybe not the literal street, but maybe half a kilometer away who are not in the same socioeconomic bracket. 
And I know when you negotiate international business deals, you're dealing with the economic and professional and governmental elites in a country, and you all kind of speak the same language. There's also cultural nuances. I mean, doing a deal in India is not the same as doing a deal in China, the Philippines, or Thailand. How has that changed, and how do you navigate some of those differences and be kind of respectful and mindful of the differences, but also aware of the commonalities? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very true. There are different ways to do business in, in different places, and understanding the cultural nuances in where you're actually doing a deal you know is is very important to successfully being able to execute that that deal certain countries the you know the investment bankers are very happy to you know work around the clock or expect to work around the clock others very much you know want to be home at 5 there are countries where you know holidays are are sacred and you would never ask for a conference call on a holiday or a weekend. There are other jurisdictions where it's 24/7 365 and any you know any hour is is fair game. Understanding that, understanding in certain certain jurisdictions criticism is taken well, in other jurisdictions criticism is not taken well and you have to you have to explain yourself in certain times in ways that are different than you would if you were in a, in another jurisdiction. There are too many to name, but it's, it's important to know those nuances and and traditions when you're navigating transactions. Yeah, and from your expertise and experience there, do you do you find yourself sometimes playing the role of translator? I don't mean linguistically, but I mean culturally, because not everybody on your deal team will have that same awareness of the nuances. Yeah, we we try we try to ensure that if, if someone is the first time doing a transaction, say in Indonesia, that we make people understand the importance of the the cultural nuances. Yeah, I've also sometimes discovered that the role of a contract or a contract negotiation can be viewed differently. This is especially the case, I think, maybe in joint venture agreements, where one side might come in, let's say, with a U.S. or U.K. background, assuming that the purpose of the negotiations was to establish the rules that would govern their relationship. And as relationship might change in the future, they would amend the contracts to change those rules. And if someone didn't comply, you could go to a third party, a court or an arbitrator, and get that enforced. And other folks, and I found this especially to be the case uh, in cross-border transactions, viewed the negotiating process as a way of building trust. Once you trusted each other and felt you had a, relation, a mutual relationship, then you signed the contract really kind of as a milestone or a marker to evidence how mature your relationship was, not with the expectation that you would always amend the contract or abide by the contracts, but instead that because you have signed it, it means you trust each other enough that you will cooperate and collaborate and accommodate going forward. And later that could lead to disputes if people had different views about what the purpose of the contract and negotiations were, were all about. Yeah, and I think it's important that as we as as lawyers and counselors are explaining to our clients the way that this contract is going to be interpreted under, you know, New York law, for for example, which is generally what we're advising on. And you're right. So the client who may have a thought that we're going to be consistently amending this contract because it doesn't, you know, our, as our as our relationship changes, may not be understanding the way the contract is going to be interpreted when there's a dispute. It's not that there will be a amendment to the contract. There then may be a disagreement and potentially a lawsuit. You know, you're looking at, at cultural nuances. We were negotiating the terms of a investment for a power plant in China. And this was in the wake of the Asian financial crisis. 
And one of the things that happened, the government cared very deeply that this privately built foreign owned power plant would create a lot of jobs. And it did. It created thousands, tens of thousands of construction jobs with people moving in from all over China to work on this project. One of the things that the government asked us to do in the memos was to build basketball courts for each worker. And we looked at it, we said, well, we're translating that incorrectly. What you mean is we build basketball courts for the workers, right? Because they're all living together and working together. So we build some basketball courts and they can play basketball. And it turned out, no, uh, the, the translation was, was not correct. The, the Chinese language and what the government required was in fact, we would build hundreds of basketball courts all over the town, not just for the workers, as kind of one of the, you know, remediations for this. And, and people figured out that, you know, there really were, there was a broader economic urban development goal associated with this project. It wasn't just, you know, us creating jobs. Yeah. And I think that with respect to Chinese contracts, there's always that dispute of which version will govern if you have an English version and you have a Chinese version. And yeah, you run into those problems where people are, they've misinterpreted what is, is in the contract. And I bet they had to go build the, build the basketball courts. We did. (laughs) <laughs> there are some exactly. are probably still there. <laughs> What's the biggest challenge you've found, though, kind of along those lines in, in your negotiations? The biggest surprise where there was a, just this wow moment that it occurred to you at some point that people were just not seeing this the same way? Well, I think a good example I can give is it, the, in the context of when, we st- when I started doing you know, high-yield bonds for issuers in Asia, and you, I realized how little the person who was tasked with, and you, you even up to the CFO, but usually an assistant because the CFO would be too busy to sit and try to learn all the covenants. But to what, what an extent issuers who had outstanding high-yield bonds with the various covenants that you would see you know, in a typical high-yield bond, lack of understanding of what the covenants mean, how they work, what they needed to be doing to ensure that they were following them. There was this old joke that we used to say that, you know, the CFOs of a lot of companies would take the terms and conditions at closing, put them in the, put them at the bottom of the drawer and then bring them out when it was time to do a refinancing. And, you know, you would have covenant breaches up and down the entire time that the bond was outstanding. And then, and, you know, it ends up being at the time that there's a refinance when the lawyers come in and start saying, well, you, you know, you were in breach of this and you were in breach of this. That, that actually, that, that's, that actually happened to me with one client where they had an ex- outstanding high yield bond that prohibited or, or significantly prohibited subsidiary debt. Now that's a normal covenant, but it wouldn't be as restrictive as it was um, on this transaction. And I was given a call by one of the investment bankers who said, look, we're going to do a deal for the subsidiary of this company, you know, and they have some outstanding bonds. Can you have a look at them? We looked at them and saw this really restrictive covenant and said, well, you can't do this deal, you have this super restricted covenant on raising money at the subsidiary level. And and the, the company was just blown away. They had no idea that they had agreed to this in their, you know, in their original deal. Ended up having to do uh, you know a whole consent solicitation in order to amend the term so the subsidiary could do the transaction that they wanted to do. Yeah, I mean it's that that to me is is quite amazing. And you look at when you look at the sheer number of transactions that are done in the in the Chinese high yield space i think they make up you know upwards of 90% of the high yield bonds that have come out of asia there's just no way that they all understand what 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 are in the covenant packages how much of that is also because you don't have the armies of lawyers crawling all over things 
trained the way they might be elsewhere. And also the, the role of the accounting firms may be different. And also the accounting standards themselves may be different. Yeah. And I think that, you know, and, and in some ways, if you have a CFO who is not interested in understanding and you don't have a good law firm who has taken the time when they are beginning to look at a transaction for the first time, we talk to our issue clients, sit them down, take them through a you know high yield 101 and work closely to ensure that the provisions work with the company's you know financial needs and growth goals over you know the life of the bond. Is it also complicated sometimes because these companies are by and large growth stories? And so you 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 know that the company, in fact the investors are hoping that the company will not look the same, you know, five, 10 years from now as it does today. And there's this tension, right, between a covenant package, which is protects, uh, especially debt purchasers from downside risks, but also allows the company the flexibility to grow and do the things you need to do when you grow, like buying and selling subsidiaries, taking on new debt, maybe changing you know, new lines of business. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the the line that all high yield lawyers need to walk. It's a fine line to something that makes investors comfortable, get, which gets you a better price, but gives you that flexibility to um, operate the business in the way that you want to, for it to grow and be successful. It's certainly not in any investor's interest to have a company, you know, not growing and be completely tied down. But they do want the protections to ensure that they're going to get their money back. Is that one reason too why some companies may choose if they're if they're more uh, schooled or educated, familiar with the differences between debt and equity, why they may choose to raise equity as opposed to debt because it comes with fewer strings attached. It may cost more too. It may cost more. Yeah, I think I think you know obviously equity from the company's perspective costs more than debt, but yeah, it has you know there's there's a lot of complicated factors that go into that analysis and where where a CFO is deciding what type of transaction they're going to do. There are some clients that we have, for example, that we know just don't want to do a high yield bond because they don't want to be subject to covenants. They understand them and they, they take them seriously and they just don't decided that they don't want to be restricted in the way they operate. What about secured versus unsecured debt for a lot of these companies, especially given some of the challenges of actually, you know, exercising remedies against collateral? Yeah, that's why, again, that's why, you know, there are secure deals, but they're not as popular as you would see in Europe or I think in the US. And that, yeah, because the ability to, to access security, certainly it, it doesn't really exist in China. In other jurisdictions around the region, the ability to get at the assets, should there be an enforcement situation, is always a, is always a concern. And I think we'll continue to be concerned just because the underlying laws, you know, are not necessarily favorable to international investors. Yeah. And that actually made the difference between some of the Asian countries and some of the emerging markets like in Latin America, where secured deals are granted. There's challenges everywhere, I think, in, in, in enforcement, but uh, secured deals may be more common. Yeah. And, and look, and there are, when there are situations where enforcement happens and there's good precedent in, in that legal system of being able to enforce the security, that obviously gives investors, you know, some degree of confidence. You know, you look at, for example, some of the things that have happened in, in Indonesia, that does not give investors confidence. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> right. So people, people investing in, in Indonesia are, you know, maybe doing so because they, you know, they get higher returns and they know they're, they're taking a higher risk with respect to even if the transaction is secured. Yeah. So if you had have to look at countries in the region and you had an, a client who was not an issuer, but someone looking to invest, where would you direct them? What are the markets you think are this, both have the right balance of risk and reward at the moment? 
Oh, that's an that's an interesting question. But I think that I think in terms of protections, I think India is probably the place to go now. And you've actually seen a significant increase in their more structured bond deals over the last year or so. One of the things that gives the Indian economy, you know, a has made it more interesting for international investors is the implementation of their new bankruptcy law. Now investors really have a way of going after companies' assets should they not pay on their debt. Previously, before there was this bankruptcy law in place, there you could ch- you could end up chasing promoters and company owners, you know, for years and years and years through the Indian courts, and you wouldn't get anywhere. Now there is a a well-functioning uh, bankruptcy law that is allowing investors to go and recoup their funds and actually put company a company into bankruptcy if if necessary if they stop paying on you know coupons on their bonds. Yeah, actually, that can make a huge difference in attractiveness to foreign investors. I know when Mexico a few years put in place their new insolvency regime, it allowed you to go to a federal court to creditors you could have voluntary or involuntary, and importantly, you could have a company restructured not just liquidated, which preserved value for for both. Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that the sophistication of the underlying legal system is is extremely important to investor confidence. Good. Well, Jim, I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your work. No, that's great, Alan. I really liked being here. I appreciate it. Good. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.